Welcome to Ariana Answers. I'm Dr. Ariana Brandolini, a clinical psychologist who lives in New York City. Every week, I answer a life question submitted by a listener like you. In the second season of my podcast, I want to unpack anxiety around situations in life we find ourselves in. Each episode will have two parts. One where I break down the situational anxiety we experience, and the other where I have an expert in the field give us some advice. Would you like your question answered? Head over to the description of this video to submit. Now, let's jump into this week's episode. You can't give out what you don't have. It's as simple as that. Dear Dr. Ariana, I have two beautiful children who I adore. I would do anything for them. My oldest son has always been a breeze. Sweet, logical, helpful. I remember feeling so smug when other parents told me horror stories about their kid. And then came my daughter. Since she was born, I felt so out of my depth. Three years now. I can't tell you how much I love this kid. She's funny, sassy, smart, but she triggers me. For the first time, I'm even having memories of my own childhood when she does certain things. I feel out of my depth. I'm so scared I'm accidentally traumatizing my children emotionally with my own stuff. How do I not damage my kids for life when I'm angry or frustrated? Parents, I tip my hat to you. Oh, learning how to nurture and grow little humans, one of the biggest jobs anyone can have. Um, it's also one that can unearth whatever unhealthiness is lurking and it creates and amplifies all of our anxiety, which makes the whole thing even harder than it already is. I work with plenty of parents whose clinical anxiety gets kicked up a notch in certain seasons of parenting, as well as those who develop anxiety about parenting. So there's just anxiety flying all around. So I really wanna normalize this struggle because most, if not every single parent I know personally and in my practice struggles from time to time, if not a lot of the time. And as you said, dear listener, what can make it so hard is that parenting different kids can actually be a whole different experience. Kids are born with different temperaments, different biology, even though they have the same genetics. And so some are gonna mesh really well and naturally with our own temperaments, and others are gonna be the complete opposite. They're really gonna try our patients, you'll feel like you don't understand them, and make you feel really out of your depth, as you described. You talked about triggers. I wanna talk about them too. What are triggers? What does it mean to be triggered? So this term recently has been casually and colloquially used and appropriated to refer to having an experience of a negative emotional reaction when we experience or see some type of disturbing content, right? Either violence or mentions of suicide or things like that, either in the media or social setting. Um, however, there is a difference between being triggered and being uncomfortable, right? So feeling triggered isn't just about something rubbing you the wrong way. For someone with a history of trauma, which is where the term trigger originally came out of, being around anything that reminds them of the traumatic experience is known as the trigger. It can make them feel like they're experiencing the trauma all over again. So although it's commonly used for people who have PTSD, 
The term trigger can also be used in the context of other mental health conditions, right? Things like substance use disorders, eating disorders, and anxiety. In these cases, a trigger is seen as anything that prompts an increase or a return in symptoms. For example, a person who's recovering from substance use, they might be triggered seeing someone doing their drug of choice and they notice returned cravings and maybe even a relapse. So triggers vary wildly from person to person and they can be either internal or external. So an internal comes from within a person. It might be a memory, it might be a physical sensation or an emotion. For example, you're exercising, your heart starts pounding, and suddenly it reminds you of a time that you ran out of the house because of a violent partner. They can also be external. So triggers coming from the environment, like a person, a place, sounds, smells. And so with all that in mind, I don't want to get too caught up in semantics. In this context, because triggers is also used colloquially, I'm talking about triggers, both the clinical definition for those of you who might have trauma histories or other clinical diagnoses, as well as just those things that when your child does, says, feels them, you have an involuntary negative response, okay? I'm also gonna use trigger in that term. It also doesn't have to be negative things that our children do that create these triggers. Sometimes a child experiencing something positively that we actually never had the chance to can trigger us too. So many of us weren't allowed to be silly or have autonomy and so sometimes when we see children, our own children living this out, it can also trigger us. So depending on your childhood, the person you are, your trigger might make you feel angry, it might make you shut down, numb out, it might make you feel upset, feel out of control, or feel like you wanna punish your kid, right? So these triggers feel almost automatic. Sometimes, most of the time, they're really out of proportion too, and it's hard to understand why I'm reacting this way. So how are triggers formed? We don't know precisely, but some researchers believe that our brains store memories for traumatic or emotionally negative events differently from memories of a non-traumatic or neutral or happy event. So those memories that are traumatizing or negative are stored differently in the brain. And because of that, past traumatic events might actually be interpreted by the brain as current experiences, which is why we sometimes relive them. And this causes the body to experience symptoms similar to the original trauma, like fight or flight, right? We also know that triggers can cause emotional reactions before the person even realizes that they're upset. Neuroscience research has shown that significant relationships and negative experiences in our lives can imprint unconscious memories in our brain. So memories that can be triggered later on in life, but we don't remember them in our conscious mind, right? So these memories can be triggered later on in life and lead to certain feelings and behaviors without us even realizing what's going on. They can look like specific incidents that bring about unexpected feelings or behaviors seemingly out of the blue, and then we inadvertently act and react out of them. I've heard it said before, we repeat what we do not repair, right? So these things, if we haven't processed them or repaired them, or if we're in the process of doing so, they'll kind of repeat and come up again. 
What that means is that even though these patterns can influence our lives at times, they can be changed, which is the good news. It requires paying attention to clues in order to build that awareness and then learning new ways of interacting and reacting. What I really want you parents to take away with triggers is remembering that you're not having a reaction because your child is behaving a certain way. You're having a reaction because of what the behavior means to you and what it triggers from your own past experiences. So it's an important distinction. It's about the behavior, not your kid. What can these triggers look like for us? We can be triggered by our kids' emotions. Maybe because we weren't raised in a way that allowed us to process emotions and express them in healthy ways. Many of us weren't able to express full emotion without being shamed or belittled or ignored. And for some, this means that a child being angry or upset really provokes a strong negative reaction inside of us. Even sometimes being silly triggers our own inner child that might have been shamed for being silly, right? Many of us maybe who weren't allowed to disobey as children without being severely punished, then when our children disobeyed, we feel confronted and challenged. Sometimes we're triggered because the things our children do are things that we would have been shamed for, belittled, or even bullied for. And so we feel protective over them and we fear them experiencing the same thing so that we want them to stop it, right? And then in other instances, triggers come about because we don't know what to do. Maybe we weren't parented as we're trying to parent and the thing that's coming up in our child just feels like a really big ask and it's like, I don't know how to help and I feel worthless and incompetent. And the problem with triggers, there's many problems with them, but is that they can rob us, at least temporarily, of actually being able to be the parent that we wanna be, right? We can act impulsively and protectively in a way that is to mitigate our own personal discomfort instead of actually genuinely doing what's best for our kids, right? So how do we parent well, or I should say, how do we parent well enough when we're triggered? Because you're not going to do it well, and that's okay. It just has to be good enough. The great thing to know is that you can parent through these triggers. You are not powerless to your past and to your reactionary responses. You're going to have a lot of practice, so don't you worry. So let's get some practical steps. Number one, of course, is going to be identifying the trigger when it happens. Not placing the blame on the child, not punishing the child out of fears or an inability of our own to not be able to cope, and certainly not punishing ourselves because we feel inadequate. Would you like me to read your letter? Click on the description of this video to submit your question. Without awareness, we can't short circuit the reaction that's happening, right? We need to build awareness first. So. How do we do this? Just by taking time to do it. Be intentional. There's no time limit. Just observe yourself more in your daily life. When you have an explosion or when that thing happens that you always do, I'm a big proponent of writing things down because we forget stuff, especially when we're in a triggered state of mind. We don't plant memories in our brain as we normally would when we're calm. So journal it, write it down, take a minute when you have a reactionary response. 
talk to other parents who you're close to and work through these triggers. Man, we all need to be in this together and it also helps normalize a lot of this stuff. And sometimes people have same similar experiences that can give words when you don't feel like you have them. Or come see me or someone like me. Go see a therapist if you feel like you need more professional help to recognize these triggers and understand why they happen, which is number two, understand why we are triggered. Sometimes it's not very clear, but other times when we actually start to create our own narrative and connect to our own story, it can be extremely groundbreaking in us being able to help ourselves. For example, you might get particularly triggered when you feel like your child isn't listening to you. And maybe that's because you felt unheard a lot as a, as a kid yourself. Once we start to realize the whys behind our behavior, we can allow ourselves to meet our own needs in different ways so that we don't have to react out of that place. And sometimes what's good to bear in mind is that we react to our kids the way that we react to ourselves. It's a product of how adults in our childhood reacted to us. For example, you see your kid acting out or doing something and you assume negative intentions. They know better, what the hell's wrong with them? This might tell me that you as a parent sometimes struggle when you mess up, your inner critic says, you know better, what the hell's wrong with you? If we react to our kids and assume the worst in them, perhaps we've learned to also assume the worst in ourselves. We often react and blame others the way that we react and blame ourselves. It's something to think about. So again, trying to figure this stuff out is hard. Journaling is a really useful skill, taking the time to take a beat and think about it. Talk this out with a friend or a partner. Ultimately, it comes down to observing and being aware, focusing on the experiences and how they make us feel. Number three, in hard moments, pump the brakes, be mindful, practice radical acceptance. Sometimes, it feels like parenting is really urgent. It has to happen now, but almost always it's not. Unless a kid has a blowtorch in their hands, you can take a beat. Even simply being honest and saying, I'm finding this hard, give me a moment, please. Taking a breath, giving yourself some space to think, and then actually implement some of the tools that we're talking about can be really helpful. When we practice mindfulness, I like to describe it like when we're flooded with emotion, we're under a waterfall. We're just getting soaked, right? What mindfulness does, it brings our attention and awareness to, I'm getting really wet. I'm being soaked by all of this stuff. When we actually are able to step out from under the waterfall, we can kind of observe it. Yes, we might still be wet, but it gives us a little bit of distance and we won't be absolutely drenched by it, right? It stops being able to control us. It can break that cycle of self-blame or whatever it is that's cascading over you in that moment. Oftentimes it is self-blame. And so whatever it is, whether it's self-blame, whether it's criticism, whether it's whatever thoughts, learn how to relate to it in a healthier way. Maybe give it a name. Hey there, Brenda. I don't know why Brenda just came out, out of my mouth. Anyway, hey Brenda, hey, it's you again. Oh, I see you. I see you, I'm feeling overwhelmed. And so, yep, you're acting up again. 
thank you for trying to help me be better, but you're not really helping me right now. So why don't you just kind of back it up and give me some space? Try to find a different voice. Once you're able to kind of tell this one to back up a little bit, try to find one that is a bit more compassionate in that moment. Be gentle with yourself. Growth is really uncomfortable and it's hard, but believe me, it is so worth it. Four, focus on your unmet needs and self-care. You can't give out what you don't have. It's as simple as that. People come up with millions of excuses and I know that juggling things is hard, but you have to make time for yourself. You just have to do it. Think about it this way. Do it for the kids. Because if you do it, you're actually gonna be able to pour more into yourself and be a better parent. You're gonna be less snappy, less impatient, have more grace and compassion. You will be a better parent for it. We prioritize things that are meaningful to us. If your kid has a doctor's appointment, you will move everything to make sure that that appointment happens. Do the same for yourself. I often have to really badger parents on this because it's so easy to put yourself on the back burner. Your kids are only as healthy as you are, okay? Oftentimes these triggers come from unmet needs within ourselves. So self-care is really, really important. And it doesn't mean that you have to like go away on a yoga retreat from your kids. Would that be great? Yes, if you can do it, absolutely go for it. But it doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be simple, small, actionable things that fill up your cup. Maybe it's literally just walking into the closet and doing five deep breaths. Maybe it's having a cup of coffee and texting a friend when you're feeling overwhelmed. Whatever it is, do more of it. And number five, and I want to spend more time on this one, reparent yourself. Reparenting is the practice of learning how to become our own wise and loving parent by speaking compassionately to ourselves with non-judgment, honoring our own needs in the present moment. Many of us were forced to play many different roles when we were kids. We were forced to deny the reality of the situation that we were in. We were forced to ignore our true feelings or our needs or forced to perform for love. As a result, many of us don't actually know how to meet our unmet needs, how to set boundaries, how to regulate our own emotions. Kids learn how to regulate emotions from their parents, from their caregivers. If no one taught us how to do this stuff, how are we supposed to know it when we're older? Do you find this information helpful? Is there a certain topic you'd like us to cover? Leave us a comment and review about what you'd like to hear. Oftentimes, if we didn't learn this stuff when we were kids, it's not necessarily our fault. We become adults who enter dysfunctional relationship dynamics because that's all we know. We might have some low self-worth, core beliefs that something is wrong with us, feel disconnected and confused from who we actually are. So reparenting ourselves actually allows us to unlearn this conditioning from our childhood and allow to make, allows us to make new choices that are actually in alignment with who we really are. This takes time, but it's really, really important. So how do you do this? You can speak to yourself as a wise and loving parent. Speak to yourself as the parents that you always wished that you had. We speak to ourselves often as we were spoken to as kids. 
Many of us were criticized or unconsciously shamed, talked out of our feelings, gaslit. So part of reparenting ourselves is validating our emotions and practicing that self-compassion. Like, it's okay to feel this way. I understand why you're afraid and you're doing the best you can. Remember, we feel before we think. Our ability to make good choices comes from how we actually connect and relate to feelings. Not things like willpower and knowing better. When we reparent ourselves, we layer acknowledgement and validation and permission to feelings. Feelings aren't good or bad, they just are. We don't need to judge them. We're able to connect to these feelings arising inside us and then develop the mental toughness and to possess the ability to be strong in the face of stress as a result, right? This is emotion regulation. Hello, good, not good enough feelings. I see you. Makes sense that you're coming up right now. I can tolerate you being here. I know that you're not all of me. So the good news is that when we start to change things internally, our interactions with others change as well, especially with our kids. And so a lot of times you wanna practice new emotional patterns. Yes, when you're triggered, it's worth kind of evaluating, taking a beat, but then doing some of this work when you're calm and not in the heat of the moment. We will get there eventually, but it is self-defeating to try to change our emotional reactions all the time when our body feels like it's on fire, right? And so let's build new skills when our body actually feels safe. So try to find a moment for yourself today, whether it's right now or later when you can steal a few moments in the bathroom in a closet. Then place your feet on the ground and put a hand or both hands on your heart. This is actually a position that cultivates self-compassion, whether it's putting your hands on your heart, on your face, giving yourself a hug, whatever feels good and natural to you. Allow yourself to notice how this feels. It might feel good. It might feel like nothing and that's fine too. But then when you're doing this and with some self-compassionate touch, try some of these words, repeat them slowly, take all of them in. Nothing is wrong with me. I am enough. Even when I mess up, I am a good parent. I'm a good person. My worth is not dependent on others' approval. I'm all right, I am safe, I will do better. To help you navigate anxiety and become more mindful, I've created a 20-page workbook for you, completely free. You'll find journal prompts, exercises, and a wealth of information on how you can master anxiety and live a better life. Click the link in the description to download. As you go through them, as you pause after each one, scan your body, eventually, it might feel very uncomfortable at first talking to yourself in a closet, but it'll feel right after you say it to yourself and you, and in those moments that you're triggered, it can really help deescalate and help you feel like that child that needed to get that compassion when you were little, right? Number two, rest. Many of us were taught that we were you know, or we are only given accolades or shown love when we accomplished things. So the sentence a message that we must earn love. 
And so rest is actually a very hard thing for people to do, but it's a practice that takes intentionality. It restores spaces of peace, creativity, self-acceptance. And so allowing ourselves to enter into rest is an amazing and healthy part of reparenting ourselves. Our worth and value isn't in what we do, it's just in being who we are. Play. Your inner child knows how to be spontaneous and to play, yet many of us are very disconnected from this part of ourselves. And we might have grown up in places or with parental figures who actually discourage that or punish that or you're just in survival mode the whole time. And so play is a practice of doing something just for you that's not going to be judged, it's not measured, it just brings joy just for being the act itself. Whether it's dancing, whether it's drawing, whether it's cooking, try to see if you can also do it not for anybody else. Do something that no one else will see, but just for your own pleasure. And lastly, say no. Boundaries. Children intuitively know how to say no. I don't like that. Stop it, right? Well-meaning parental figures will often teach us to deny our limit setting in order to be seen as good or polite. And so that might even spiral into adult cycles of people pleasing. Saying no is an act of self-respect, allows us to give more energy into the things that actually connect with who we believe we are in our value system, as opposed to pleasing other people. So all this is really nice, but what do you do when it all goes out the window and you go nuts on your kids? Good parents aren't perfect. Good parents clean up their messes. They repair. So if you emotionally lost it on your child, here's one thing it means that you are human. Welcome to the club. You are not perfect. I am so glad to see you because neither am I. Good parents don't never yell. They reconnect after tough moments of disconnection. But first, we can't repair with our kid if we haven't first repaired with ourselves. So when you feel like you've lost it and your mind is spinning and you're spiraling into self-criticism, do the grounding exercise that I mentioned. Plant your feet on the floor, put a hand on your heart, bring yourself back to your moment, pause, speak life over yourself like a loving parent would. Take five deep breaths, notice self-blame, and again, you can write your own mantras or whatever they are, but this is so important to actually retrain our brain to think different thoughts. I'm a good parent who's having a hard time. I didn't mess up my kids forever. I'm allowed to make mistakes. I can clean up my mess. And then when you feel centered, go find your kid. And so the key elements of a repair is an apology, telling a story to help your kid understand what just happened, explicitly letting them know that the behavior that you just exhibited isn't their fault, and then sharing your dedication to change, asserting that you love your kid. For example, I'm sorry. I know that that probably felt very scary. I was having a big feeling and I'm working on staying calm. I love you. Even more than words, focusing on nonverbal elements of the, of the repair or cleaning up your mess is actually what your kid hears first, right? Before they even process your language. So 
taking a moment to actually sit down with them eye to eye, give them a hug, give them your full attention. It allows you to soften. You know, when you repair with yourself, that's why it's so critical to do that first because then you're softened and you can do that with your kid, right? If you feel so harsh on yourself, your back is going to be up and your kid is going to sense it. So you have to repair with yourself first. It's so important as parents to have strategies to help you feel more equipped to handle the challenges of parenting. So it's vital to take time to practice these things. Yes, there's a natural element of parenting, but learning how to do it well, we also need teachers. There's a reason why we're built to be in community. Oftentimes we're so isolated in this world of ours because of the nature of modern parenting. But if you look at you know the way things were even a century back, we were much more connected. We were in units. We were in faith communities. We were in geographical areas. That's why when they say it takes a village, yeah, because you had people who were older and more experienced to help you walk through it. And so there's no shame in actually feeling like you don't know what the heck you're doing. And so finding those people that can also help you learn, taking the time to do that is so, so important. To all the parents that are here listening, you're doing so much better than you think you are. The very fact that you're even listening to this podcast and have gotten to the end of it shows how much you care about doing the best by your kids. You're not required to be perfect to raise healthy, well-adjusted, and good humans. The research shows that you don't need to be perfect. Just try your best to be good enough. It's never too late to start working on your own stuff. Little people have a way of showing us areas that we need to grow as big people, right? So harness that and get to work. By the way, most of that work is going to be taking time for you, practicing rest, practicing self-care, and a lot of self-compassion. Remember, if your cup isn't full, you can't give anything out to others. So do it for the kids.